You're listening to the second episode of Season 3 of the Wicked Podcast. I'm Mike Moore. This podcast is about strict rules-focused Christianity not working, but it is not an attack on faith. It's about trying to maintain some connection to God despite everything and everyone. It's also about depression, words, and music. Each episode is me pontificating and ruminating around a song from my concept album, Death in Tiny Spoonfuls, with various guests commenting as well. Episode 2, The Walking Dead. This song is part of a framing pair of songs that went on this album, seeking to one-up Roger Waters with Pink Floyd's Animals album, starting and ending with versions of the same song. He bookended with one song, I was going to do it with two. This one was somewhat me steel-manning my church-raised view that people going out and getting shit-faced was creepy and odd and stupid, that they looked like zombies shambling and stumbling in the darkness and looking gross, that it partook of death in many ways, to drink too much. In the context of this album story idea, the wanderer wanders in from the desert, seeing rotting old huts and skeletal remains and other evidence of death everywhere, and coming into the city, sees a horde of drunken zombie-like people shambling around and takes refuge by the next song with a band of people who see themselves as the still-human survivors in their compound. My childhood friend Curry grew up in the country, across the highway from our house. Curry came from a broken home which had some struggles with alcohol in it, and one that was non-practicing Anglican. My mother babysat Curry and his little brother Dougie, and we took them out to Sunday school for a few years there. I was in your house as a kid probably more than anybody else that wasn't a member of your family, I would assume. Oh, yeah. And uh, I remember the extreme awkwardness surrounding alcohol in your family. And I mm-hmm. remember that I, I remember I remember thinking, like, this is weird. You know, there's no doubt about it. I, I mean, I was so close to your family that I got used to it. Yeah. But there's no there's no doubt that, it, that, you know, I remember thinking, hey, this is why are they so afraid of it? They were a small brethren group, and my father would go and buy wine to do church Sunday morning. So he would go to the liquor store and buy that. wine, yet he would never like have a glass of wine not at church. And that's I, weird. I, I to was me. wondering how the hell your dad picked out which wine to buy. I, I don't know. It must have been yeah, tough. Yeah. Must have been tough I, for him. And so just that experience of one time like walking out to the edge of my property and someone must have thrown a beer bottle out of a car or something there's a beer bottle on my property might as well have like come from mars like what how did this because right there was never alcohol in our house to the extent that we had um, relatives from britain who we had never met they knew that we were quite religious but they came over to visit us to meet us for the first time so uh so they brought a bottle of alcohol and it, it was so awkward and we looked at the bottle of alcohol and put it on the table like it was a spider or something we didn't know what to do with it Um, and of course, Debbie, you know, took the top off and smelled it because she's Debbie. Ed's husband, Ben, grew up in a brethren home with some Baptist roots. Yeah, I grew up in a home that no alcohol was a sin. Drinking any alcohol was a sin. Mm -hmm. So that was maybe a little bit more Baptist side of my growing up. Um, and one sip will make you an alcoholic. Oh yeah. Raised in my brethren group, Chris remembers how preachers argued that all of the wine Jesus and friends were drinking and all of the wine that was part of the Jewish high feasts and the taking of Christian communion was actually necessary because of bad water quality, water being scarce in the Middle East. And so this wine, quote-unquote, was watered down to the point of not being intoxicating at all. It was talked about in the non-alcoholic drinks in the Bible. Um, All that non-alcoholic wine? All that non-alcoholic wine. 
And I think that some of my relatives, question mark, I don't know them, had problems with alcohol. At least that's what my parents said. Whether it's true or not, I don't know. See those conference between in the hotel. On one side of the V, there's a lunch room. And on the other side is where the conference room is. And between there, there's a bar. And so you have this juxtaposition between all these very meeting people and people just relaxing and enjoying their evening. And it, I was like, who are those evil people over there at the bar? It's just you didn't go in, of course. Oh, no. There's too many people around. Right. So just to kind of recap that, you're at the conference, and you're there to hear about the Bible. And the place that you're staying is right by, there's a bar, and there's a bunch of drunk people. And, and what did you think of them? I was very curious, honestly. I kind of wanted to go see what it was like. I just never had the courage to do it when all the other people were there. Ruth, also raised in our church but in rural Maine, says... My dad would have like a grasshopper um, out for dinner. My mom would have a single glass of wine. So we grew up seeing it. Um, you know, we would go over to my grandparents. Um, my, my, my folks might have a single glass of wine um, with my grandparents. Um, so, but we grew up seeing it. And then at a certain point, um, they got exercised to give it up. So they were completely teetotal. All I knew of alcohol during those years was drunkenness was excess was the harm that alcohol can do and so I had an experience in my teens where I was um, I was molested in fact by an alcoholic and so that really served to deepen that conviction that alcohol is bad alcohol leads to alcoholism alcohol leads to people hurting people and people who drink are bad people People who drink are bad people. Yes. I never saw in those formative years, I never saw what having a glass or two of wine look like in a safe way. I never saw what moderation looked like. It was either extreme abstinence, right? Or it was um, excess. Evan, getting his PhD in economics thinks abstinence isn't being sold effectively to kids. You know, I, I said the, the stat there that 50% of people with alcoholism in their family have that predisposition. Well, first of all, some people don't have it in their family. So that stat's only relevant for some people. But I think that that's a really dumb thing to tell kids because there's going to be so many who try alcohol and don't become alcoholics. And then it's just, you know, it, what else are we going to start questioning? I think you're right that there's definitely a self-fulfilling prophecy element to it. I think emphasizing that you're going to be an alcoholic only carries weight if you're going to also emphasize what would be the problem with that. I don't know if there's a word for like a caffeine addict or somebody who drinks coffee every day, a caffeaholic or whatever it'd be. Um, that's socialized. I absolutely think it's an addiction. And we're okay with it because short of maybe some personal health concerns, your teeth going a, a bit yellow or... We wouldn't really think of it as a huge problem because it doesn't destroy an entire family, but alcoholism is not like that. And so if you're emphasizing you're going to be an addict, it's like, oh, okay. And, and, and so if you're emphasizing, you might, you know, go on to become an abusive spouse, or you might hit your kids, or you might cause your family to go into debt. Like these are, are much scarier things. And what we should be trying to do is get people to live lives where they're not going to end up doing that. Uh, I think.
am I right in thinking Mormons, there was no alcohol and no caffeine or something? Yeah, they have what's called the word of wisdom, which um, was part of the text that Joseph Smith wrote, which, yeah, that was some of the main things were no caffeine. Uh, it didn't even say no caffeine. It said no hot drinks. Wow. So the, the more devout people could interpret that as, you know, not very hot soup, <laughs> you know, no hot chocolate, no herbal tea. But most people uh, agreed that it was no, no caffeine. Um, no alcohol, definitely no cigarettes. I don't know if that's similar to your parents mentioned that uncle so-and-so and it's, it's in oh, our we blood. did have an uncle so-and-so that's yeah. for sure. Yeah. <laughs> if you make the choice for yourself to not drink, that's one thing, but I don't think it's one bit healthy to have the expectation that either you completely abstain or you don't know how to control yourself and you end up well, frankly, in a ditch somewhere. I don't think that is one bit healthy for kids to see that growing up. No. Because it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Oh, I yes. I believe in that. Now, maybe I'm a bit superstitious about it, but I do believe that's what in I'm that. Seeing. I've been trying to see if that's part of why so many brethren people, well, they're told that you can't, like, now, now we have computers, but we're told you can't go to the movies and watch movies or you'll become addicted to pornography. If you go into yeah. the video store and you rent ET, you will soon be addicted to pornography. If it's you, a slippery slope. Yes, a slippery slope. If you drink a glass of wine, you will soon be having scotch for breakfast. If you date non-Christian girls, soon enough, you'll be a father of five children by five different women. We, this was a <laughs> self-fulfilling prophecy. And yes. I, I think they were shameless in how much they would exaggerate it. And yet, it's like, I swear that a lot of kids were told these things, had a look over the fence and said, okay, deal. And they didn't even try not to become alcoholics with five different kids or whatever. Like they just went right at it because they were told that's the option. I'm also amazed at how many of them were told, like, God hates like people drinking alcohol. It's wrong. And so if you if you drink alcohol, you'll become an alcoholic and God won't Mm -hmm. like you. And it's wrong. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people said, yeah, okay, deal. As long as I can drink beer, God can hate mm-hmm. me and I'm wrong and I don't care. And the, the, mm-hmm. so I was a weird kid that was saying, well, maybe God doesn't hate it or where are you getting this from? Or maybe it isn't wrong. And, and I wasn't mm-hmm. actually doing it. I was trying to talk my way with words to a place mm-hmm. where I felt that maybe the obstacle they had placed could be removed. I think what a whole lot of people did was just run head first into that wall and see what happened. That makes sense to me. It seems like that's just basic human nature, or at least a certain kind of a personality. I think that if you tell that person something so many times, they're going to believe it without like stopping and examining it for themselves or using their own judgment. Kim? Raised in my very church assembly and founding member of the award-winning East Coast punk band Like a Motorcycle agrees. Yeah, would agree with you 100%. I think a lot of people manifest that in themselves. They take what they're told is going to happen to them and they make it so, you know. I think Mm -hmm. that's, that's really sad. And I think, again, what we know about telling kids no in general is that they're going to turn around and do that thing. So, I mean, just from a psychology point of view the tactics were like really off yeah. you know it's like 
Um, I drink. Um, I think that there was times in my life where I was like, oh, I got to like get this under control. But mm-hmm. I don't think I would ever say I was an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. I just don't think like that's how I'm genetically like, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I think some people are definitely more susceptible to it than others. Mm-hmm. I think like, thankfully, um, because if I had that predisposition, I would definitely be an alcoholic from the amount I've drank in my life. But, you know, thank did you God. have that thing like a lot of us brethren people that not only were you not allowed to drink alcohol, you're warned that there was some obscure relative who was an alcoholic. And so you're being promised that if you ever drank, you would probably become an alcoholic, too, because a bunch of us got that. Well, my, you know, my mom's family drank, my mom's family were not in the meeting and they drank. And so I think it was like, oh, well, they drank, but I was like, but they're awesome. And they never do anything like right. rude or mean. And they're nice to me. And they, when they drink, they just have fun, you know? So mm-hmm. I never, so as much as I think my mom would have wanted to be like, oh, well, they're drinking. I was like, well, that looks great. Right. <laughs> you know, I like these people. These people are awesome. Jay, an award-winning singer-songwriter, talks about being the kind of person who got into trouble with substance abuse while still an adolescent. We were like everybody, young people who like to, you know, you like to have a few drinks and you like to have fun and and stuff. And, you know, I was always just one of those people that sometimes, it, it was really hard for me to stop when I started drinking. It was hard for me, like I just wanted to keep drinking until I was like feeling really buzzed and really out of it. And the same with drugs, you know, I just want to continue chasing that initial feeling, which you'll never quite catch up to, you know? So Mm. for me, I never did, but I kept chasing it for a long time. He talks about how addiction to alcohol and drugs often afflicts people struggling with mental health problems, in his case, undiagnosed bipolar disorder. And then I would have these, you know, other periods where I would just be like, so, so up and so energetic Mm-hmm. And I got a lot done <laughs> at yeah. the same time. There, there's a crash that happens after yeah. that. And then it's really hard to kind of climb out of that. And I, I never real, realized exactly what was going on there. And then uh, finally it got really bad. And I ended up uh, going through a bunch of personal stuff. And at the same time, you know, really a lot of substance abuse involved, you know, lots of alcohol and lots of drugs and going through this really sad and unpleasant experience. And I, I just kind of lost it. I was getting really depressed. Michael Vetter, raised in a Plymouth Brethren family of teetotalers and who lives up a tree on the side of Clinch Mountain, Tennessee nowadays, has had his struggles with alcohol and characteristically shares this while sidestepping the words drinking problem or alcoholic. I've been in the position of, of being an over-consumer of alcohol. I've gotten through it. I would credit most of that to my wife being able to wake me up and drag me out of that. So in the world proper, you were supposed to live a life and have fun. But in our church, you weren't supposed to do either of those things. They never got exercised to embrace more joy, did they? No, they, they never did. Oh, no. Oh, no, they never did. Uh, every single exercise that they went through was about giving up something that was enjoyable. Like I can remember, well, I mentioned the exercise of giving up alcohol. There was another exercise of giving up what they called worldly music. We're talking like CCR, mm-hmm. right? We're talking Peter, Paul, and Mary. Yeah. Well, Puff the so, Magic Dragon, you know, it was oh, marijuana. Oh yeah, Very, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Of course, we didn't even know what the word marijuana meant back then, but nope. we knew it was something that nobody wanted to have anything to do with. Of course, we were very anti-dancing. Mm-hmm. 
of course, uh, because dancing could lead to fornication. I say oh, that with an yeah. absolutely straight face. Yeah. <laughs> now, our sister Elizabeth would have said fornication, very, very bad. Fornication could have led to dancing. Thinking today mm-hmm. about the fact that, yes, some people dance as like a precursor mm-hmm. to romantic and sexual activity. But mm-hmm. isn't it also just a way that a lot of people express joy? Very, very, very much. Do you think that might have been why we were so anti-dancing? This sounds very paranoid to me, but I wrote in my books and I, I still think that a lot of the control of our lives was anti-youth, anti-female and anti-joy. I can't argue with that. You know, I can't. Because yeah, there, there's just stuff that, well, why is this bad? And the most obvious answer is because people enjoy it. That's why it's bad. Yeah. And that's why I, several people have flinched at me saying that we worship a joy-hating God. Like, I don't, I believe in God, but I don't believe in the joy-hating Lord G. God that we sacrifice yeah. upon his altar, our televisions and our CCR tapes and our Star Trek novels. I don't right. believe in that petty God. And yet we, we were raised in fear of that God, terror of yeah. that God. As far as the drunks and stuff, I didn't have so much of that as I really enjoy movies and watching shows. Hmm. And so it was not so much drinking for me as evilness of movies and shows. So. Entertainment was just as bad as being an alcoholic. Pretty much, yeah. We're supposedly getting ready for heaven, and yet we're practicing not enjoying good things. <laughs> exactly that's a good way to put it so what are we gonna what are we gonna do like the it's the marriage supper of the lamb and whatever form that like i yeah heaven yeah. hell and all that i assume that i don't when i imagine in my head i'm assuming that i'm not imagining very wisely or or i don't think that we've there's been much of an attempt in the bible or anywhere else to really tell us very much at all about it right. but you know assuming the marriage supper of the lamb um yeah. and there's you know wine i'm just imagining all these brethren and methodist and baptist people saying oh no 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 i don't drink wine no that's yeah. sinful and it's better be grape juice yeah it better not be wine <laughs> and that's that's ridiculous obviously johan a high school teacher raised in a fairly typical baptist home although not a teetotaler is not a huge fan of alcohol Oh, there's a lot of history of alcoholism in both my family and my wife's family. Um, we, we've lost both lost family members to it, and uh, so yeah, I mean it's it's always there. Um, my my parents were oh, especially my mother was always very wary of my drinking when I was young, but I had a lot of digestive problems as a teenager when my friends started drinking heavily, and uh, I I always had trouble stomaching a lot of beer, so I could never binge drink the way that my friends did. I think that uh, going out and having fun, when is that not actually any fun at all? When, when you're young and when binge drinking is popular and cool and when you are the DD and you're sober, that's when it's not actually very fun at all. Um, That's when, in fact, it's pretty darn miserable, in fact. For context, I I come from a family with like a lot of alcoholics. Thankfully, nobody in my immediate family, but the stories I've heard about family members, you know, they can be difficult. Alcohol and partying is one thing, like that's one way that it affects. But what people, I think, sort of don't appreciate is how alcohol can be sort of a a stopper of potential. Like it takes somebody who 
is very competent, very sociable, whatever. And it sort of puts them in a place where they aren't focused on the things that they find important when they're sober and they make mistakes and they cause heartbreak. Uh, and it causes people to not feel safe, uh, it, you know, in their own home or out in public. There's obviously the financial concern. And I really don't think it can be overstated that alcoholism can tear a family apart. And that's not to say my family is necessarily torn apart, but there are certainly lasting effects. So I was eight years old. I walked in on a family member. He was passed out on the floor and I didn't understand that. I didn't know what that meant. I thought he was dead and I was eight years old. So maybe that's forgivable. My older brother was there. He was 12 at the time. He sort of rushed me out of the room. He got it. He was old enough to understand his sort of his best move was to just get us out of the room. Good move. And when it was explained to me sort of, you know, he's not dead, he's, he's drunk, he's passed out. It really became a thing in my head that alcohol was just bad. It never seemed to me to be the case that any of the good it could offer uh, would overcome the bad. If you go and you look up the stats about alcohol and heredity, you're going to get different numbers. Um, but a number I just saw the other day is it was the American Addiction Center. And it, it said 50% of alcohol or alcoholism predisposition is genetic. And so 50% is crazy if you're from a family like mine with alcoholism. So do you take the first drink? And so when you know the chance, I mean, 50%, I think there's a comedian who says, if you're crossing a street and 50% weren't making it to the other side, would you bother crossing? If there's a 50% chance I'm going to be an alcoholic after having a few drinks or getting drunk the first time or whatever, I know how bad that can get. And you know, I'm pretty hopeful for the future. I, I think I got some stuff going for me. I understand the potential that I could be losing. And so when somebody says that they want to just try out alcohol, like they're just experimenting or whatever, and, and you often hear, I, I think parents say this, oh, she's just experimenting or he's just trying stuff out. I don't think they sort of deeply appreciate how bad of an experiment that can be. That's not to say I think we should, you know, go back to prohibition. That had different problems. If you've taken history class, you know that that didn't go as well as it could. But I think we need to start being a little bit more honest about how terrible things can be and, and sharing more stories. I mean, it's certainly not the case that alcoholism is taught as like a good thing that you should try to do for yourself. I don't mean that. But we've absolutely socialized it as an okay thing to do. And maybe that's okay. And maybe it's okay for some people. But we have to, I think, be a little bit more understanding for people who it's not going to be okay. I think it's from Jackie Brown's like a Quentin Tarantino movie and Samuel Jackson has like the much younger girlfriend Bridget Fonda and she's just sitting on the couch smoking weed all day and he eventually says baby you gotta stop doing that and she's like why why can't I just and he said it's gonna rob you of your ambition yeah and she says what if my ambition is to sit on the couch and smoke weed all day <laughs> right yeah grade eight or grade nine I went out with friends once and someone was able to get some coolers so I'm like, oh, you know what? I'm just going to have fun with my friends. And so there, there was the one night of a couple of coolers. And then after that, I remember like committing to myself, like that can't happen again. You shouldn't have done that. And I went uh, all the rest of the way through high school. I was like, I'm just making a promise to myself that I'm not going to do that. And so I missed out. I didn't go to all those parties because people were drinking and I disapproved. And was it um, the forbiddenness that made it so fun or the, the social, like being with people? 
maybe a bit of both just the curiosity of okay well what is it like why mm -hmm. are we not allowed to have any of it because uh, we didn't do wine for sacrament we did water mm -hmm. and you know like we were the only mormons in our entire extended family so i would see you know on christmas you know they would have wine or whatever and like what what's the big deal why is it so bad but then as i like i said in high school grade 10 11 I got a little bit more serious and so it was a definite no and uh, my friend group changed to i found friends who weren't drinking so it was easier that way my sister debbie weighs in on her experiences of trying alcohol actually i had my first beer at curry's place and it was a very calm sort of like well you haven't tried beer yet maybe you'll like this raspberry flavored beer and i remember he gave me the beer and i was you know i had all the the cult like ooh, this is so evil this this is probably you know it was like this almost like um worshipped cup in front of me but also terror and then when i drank it i was like that tastes pretty good and then i remember we drove to kingston and i just remember having to pee and not realizing how much of a diuretic that mm -hmm. beer was and and it hit me and i had to pee in a ditch but <laughs> that was the i wasn't drunk i wasn't going you know crazy at the bars that was like someone who you know alcohol was sort of a and Norm in his life, and Curry was like my big brother, basically, in a lot of ways different than you. And so he was kind of like, well, I, you know, if you want to go dancing in Hull, I'll go with you and make sure you're safe. Mm -hmm. And I actually really appreciated that because there was really a, a sense of he's got my best interest in mind. He knows I was raised really backwardly. He's going to be there to, you know, to to make sure that everything goes down okay as I try the things in the order that a normal person would have tried probably five or seven years prior. My sister draws that connection between mental illness and alcohol abuse. But then when I hit the whole, you know, the the vetter, um, you know, subcult, I would call it, um, the shit hit the fan. Everybody had like buried trauma everyone was boozing like crazy and then there was this weird spiritual ideology where people were like you know burning their skin in competitions and competing you know in different ways and then shooting themselves in the head i mean what the f debbie is referring to an odd game involving who would take their hand away from a lighter flame first and the sad fact that doug ended up taking his life in an odd solo Russian roulette session. It almost felt like going from zero to alcoholism. Like there, it was like, yep. there was no, it seemed like there was no progression. It was just like, as soon as people got the booze, it was like, okay, this is, I think it was almost like, this is a, this is power. This is like a, this is pack mentality. This is power. We go out together. We go to the bars. We, you know, we're powerful. And then we had our, our resident cult leader, Mark, who was leading the pack with his, you know, ideology, which was, you know, running parallel to the church's ideology, but was like completely infused with his own brand of narcissism. So you had like a whole bunch of young, young in in you know development kids following this slightly older you know i would say sociopathic personality disordered person who was an alcoholic and so people, and everyone drank people in their 20s so legally and everything supposedly ready to go to bars and that kind of thing but actually acting like a bunch of kids and part of what was going on there was a competitive drinking thing that was still happening in their 20s my my 13 year old has never shown interest, but they've both been told that, 
you know, it's if you want to try, if you're interested in tasting wine or having a taste of beer, just let us know. No problem. There's no restriction. They both tasted no alcohol beer. And I've done everything I possibly can to demystify alcohol and make it something for them not to be afraid of and not to have too much reverence for. And I, you know, any families where I see the children being raised around where just, you know, responsible and normal consumption of alcohol and it's not considered forbidden. My current philosophy is that's a, the best way to raise kids and the best, healthiest relationship mm-hmm. with, that, with alcohol is don't make it something so, you know, mysterious and evil that someone is going to overabuse it. I think that is probably the most reasonable way to approach it. It's, you know, the way we were raised as kids, and like you, you referenced the Ottawa Valley, and for sure, I mean, it was almost impossible to be a teenager there and not drink too much. I mean, mm-hmm. it was... I mean, everything revolved around beer specifically. I wouldn't even say alcohol. Everything revolved around beer. Yep. It was really, in my case, hard liquor didn't have much of a place. And as you know, I was never much into drugs at all. It was always just beer. And, yep. and, and, and you know, and, and, but it was just such a dominant part. Like everything was done with a beer in your hand. Growing up where I did, there's definitely enough people that I've seen that I would classify as like functional alcoholics, mm-hmm. like people that I... In fact, there are people in my life, even up until in my 20s, that if I was to get into a car with them, I would want to make sure that they had been drinking. Because sober them driving would probably kill all of us. Because they have the shakes and stuff? The shakes, they just don't know how to function anymore. Like, they, they literally drink nonstop. In other words, it's, you're not saying that you like to drive with them when you're drunk. You just, you don't want to drive with them when they're detoxing. Yeah, and that's the problem, is that they are... Hilarious tremens. They're, um, they're normal. Like, they're st- like, their bar, the status quo for them, is now a world of just constant intoxication. They're always drinking. So if they don't, watching them do stuff where they can't have a drink is kind of like, wow. Like, I know. You know what? Just drink this 26 or uh, just before we get into that car. I grew up around a lot of people like that. Um, uh, and I've definitely known, I mean, well, I mean, we both know Bill has gone through periods of severe alcoholism. And I was living with him at one point. And I mean, um, like a good example of kind of the intensity of it was I uh, I did something at the place I was working and I got rewarded with a case of my favorite beer. Mm-hmm. And I brought it home. And I I drink, but I am... I'm not a very good on my own drinker. I'll drink occasionally, but it is is not something. I'm more likely to social drink, and that's fine. But even then, I've never been much of a drinker. And, uh, yeah, in one evening, I went upstairs. I came down probably uh, maybe around 9 or 10 o'clock, and I've been home since maybe 5 or 6. He uh, completely drank every single one of those beers. Mm -hmm. He emptied the case, the whole thing, just boom, and was drinking more like and that was that was like wow i know there was a couple times i i decided that i would try to keep up with him for like a weekend Mm -hmm. and i definitely had to tap out like what i really couldn't understand was how to physically fit that much volume yeah in your stomach and And bill's not a huge guy yeah but yeah to, to to be able to pack that away but i mean i've seen in other people like that i grew up with as a kid seeing other adults that were rails and yet you know, like just in the span of a visit mm-hmm. at my old man's place, they might uh, drink six beers mm-hmm. and that could maybe be an hour. So, I mean, like, it's just like, wow, uh, I don't know how you do it. <laughs> it's got to go in and out immediately. But the idea of an alcoholic was not something I really understood because they had to be a person that 
it affected their lives in a negative way, but mm-hmm. all the people I grew up with, they drank so much that it wasn't affecting their lives. It's just that was their life. Right. So it wasn't until a lot older that I really understood what a alcoholic really was, like the other side of it. Talking about Doug um, and Doug doing everything a bit too much. And one of the things he did too much is, you know, being at your house and buying Silent Sam vodka. And I think it was like Crown Royal or something and drinking it down to the label and just puking like sick. Yep. I, I sort of, I, I mean, I remember that guy well. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, he definitely had something to prove and he was yeah. on the, and he was definitely on the extreme side of it. And, and I think that that's your relationship with alcohol and you're not having done those things. I would say is the exception. Yes. I think having that bizarre relationship with alcohol that your family had and that people in, uh, and, and I, I guess we'll refer to as the brother. And if that's, 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 that's what, what we, we that's what we've been doing. So if um, I think the vast majority of people that are in that group have, uh, have such a strange relationship with alcohol, it would be very normal for them to, when they do finally decide to use alcohol, like to have these extreme reactions, mm-hmm. this extreme overuse, drink to your puke and, and that sort of thing. So it's a testament to, to your balance to be able to do that. I think that's cool. I think, it, I think it's very good. I think it's good that you got to the point where you can enjoy alcohol. I think it's, I think it's a really good news story that it never became a huge problem for you. Because mm-hmm. my suspicion is it very easily could become a problem for a lot of people. It like mostly that. did. And that's actually... In, in the podcast, that's where it went. Like the story with you and your friends is just regular Ottawa Valley stuff. So people drinking beer and stuff and a few people get too drunk and people were sort of finding their feet, learning their limits and sort of laugh about people who drank too much or whatever. But there's sort of a grace period, I think, when you're in your teens and your early 20s. And, you know, I had my first alcoholic beverage apart from at church when I was 21, which is reasonably late around here. But it was never a thing for me. The vetters, the people from Pennsylvania were an underground kind of brethren group. And they were smoking cigarettes and smoking cigars and smoking pipes and drinking whiskey and drinking vodka and doing tobacco. Um, yeah. And, and it went and it went way, way too far. I mean, if you're no. told you can't have something mm-hmm. for the vast majority of your childhood and then you get unfettered access to it, it's 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 very normal to you know abuse the shit right out of it. So I don't find any of that surprising. It's obviously sad and unfortunate. And I don't know what became of a number of the of the folks from Pennsylvania. Obviously, the person I knew best was Michael Vetter. Yeah. Um, but uh, and I still see him on Instagram from time to time. He's got a ridiculous mustache. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but the, the Mike, Michael never had the sort of problems with alcohol that some of the other Pennsylvania d- people did. He could certainly drink really hard, but whatever it is, um, he didn't have to do it every day. So right. that's kind of cool that he didn't. I knew when I invited Tim onto the podcast that he was going to have wild stories about substance abuse and how he went from being raised Jehovah's Witness with no alcohol allowed or birthdays either with a switch to the very strict no alcohol allowed grace brethren based on who his divorced mother was dating and then leading a path of extreme substance abuse makes a hell of a story. With the drinking, uh, was that more of a rebellion against them or was it more of a self-medicating thing do you what do you think about it well i had i had uh was you know given my testimony in this youth group by the time i was 16 i was given testimony at the grace brother youth group youth group about how i come out of jehovah witness and, you know we're praying for my dad he drinks but he's doing better and all this shit and and, uh, and i was at a homecoming football game and these girls i knew uh, said, hey, come out with us. And we went out to, this, to their car. Now, 
some friends of mine, I think I told you this yesterday, a, friend, a good friend of mine who was, his dad was like a, a big wig at the local Christian college here. He'd started partying. And I was like, man, you're doing that, you know? He's like, oh man, it's awesome. It's fun, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, so that was kind of in the back of my mind. And I went, I went out to these girls had a bottle of peppermint schnapps. Now, the day before, I was the good church boy. Right, the girls. And going to youth. Yeah. So I, I, the day after, I, I'm doing the, the peppermint schnapps. That same day, that same night, I ended up with a chick under my arm, a cigarette in my mouth, and a bottle in my hand. I mean, that was the first time I drank. And, and those, it, was, it was awesome. And those were exactly all the things that you weren't supposed to do according to either the Jehovah's Witness or the Grace Brother, you're absolutely not supposed to. What do you think made it feel so great? The fact that the freedom of it or, or what do you think? One, all my inhibitions went away. I, I wasn't afraid of, because up until that point, I felt very much like an outsider, you know, mm-hmm. uh, very much like uh, just, you know, you're supposed to be seen, not heard. Yeah, because that was kind of how I was raised. You, know? you said you said like yeah. furniture. Yeah, yeah. We would go to my stepdad's family. We would go to his place, and you know, because he's this raging alcoholic, but well, we had to put the, the face on, and everything was okay. We go to these family, right. even Christmas or whatever, you know. And we were just, we were you guys were meant to be seen, not heard. Uh, you know, the saving grace for me in a lot of ways, uh, Mike, is I. My grandmother, my, my dad, Steve's uh, mother, who wasn't my, my you know, actual blood grandmother, dude, she loved me more than anybody in the whole world. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that woman's love, I think, is one of the things that kind of brought me back from that, that dark side of, uh, of alcohol and drugs. You know, that was the biggest thing when I started drinking and partying. I mean, I, was like, I, I felt accepted. I felt good. And then all of a sudden, I had all these stories to tell everybody, you know. And... We were actually going to Ottawa. And when I saw him, he looked like a corpse. Like it worried me. He was really troubling looking. He was very mm-hmm. sick. And I went up and asked him if he was okay. And he like swore at me and nearly fell over into a snowbank and like staggered past. And I kind of said to people like, what's up? And they're like, Oh, it's fine. He's just drunk. And I was thinking like, he's not fine. He's not just drunk. And I also was a bit annoyed that he swore at me. And they're like, no, no, you can't like he's, he's, he's drunk. So he gets to swear at you. I'm thinking, oh, why, why does that work like that? You know? Right. Um, now I'm not a real teetotaler, of course, because, uh, I've had a little bit, I've, I've tried a sip of beer here or there. I've put a bit of Bailey's in a coffee or a bit of Bailey's in a hot chocolate. Do you like Bailey's? <laughs> Who are you? I'm old Greg. Pleased to meet you. It's fun. Bailey's is fun, but um, not very much. And, uh, I will say the temptation, I, I guess it speaks to what you were just saying. Like somebody sort of becomes somebody else and not that I want to be more of a prick, uh, than I am by getting drunk, there is some temptation, some allure, uh, to learning what I would be like drunk. People talk about, oh, some people are lovers. Some people are fighters. You know, you have all these archetypes for different drunk people. (laughs) I suppose there, there is part of me, uh, that I, I would like to know what that is. I've on occasion sort of threatened slash joked about, auctioning off my first drunkenness like I'll, I'll have a big charity event people can pay to come see me get drunk the first time i don't know that we all agree about what somebody's drunk state says about them if anything at all you know you'll hear people say or i've seen you know on facebook drunk words are sober thoughts 
I don't know if I agree with that all the way, right? That this idea that you're now going to be very forthcoming about all your thoughts that you were previously keeping in. I, I think that sort of flies in the face of this idea that your judgment is, is delayed and flawed when you're drunk. You were just saying about your friend, he's being a jerk to you um, when he's drunk. It's like, what do you think about that? I, at the time, I mm-hmm. thought it's like they're saying he's on a mystic journey. There's like there, there's something <laughs> like that. And Nathan, guy I used to hang around with, he told me quite proudly that you know he increasingly got drunk all the time. But he told me that every time he got drunk and didn't remember what happened, he would go and ask everyone, "What did I say? What did I do?" Because he was trying to learn about himself. I think eventually. <laughs> There's little to learn besides the fact that he was yeah. a person who was drunk all the time. But um, <laughs> Nathan's better than that. But that was what was going on in his life, certainly at that point. I don't know if I think that that's level-headed, interested in yourself, or if there's some narcissism built in there, right? You probably haven't watched the movie Young Guns with Kiefer Sutherland. I have seen that, you have actually. Seen I, was, so, I, I was so, a kid, so I don't know how much I'll remember. So this is why when Doug was drunk and people were basically telling me, well, yeah, he's drunk. I was thinking about that scene in Young Guns where they don't know what to do. And so um, Chavez, Chavez, Lou Diamond Phillips, because whenever things get bad, you got to have Lou Diamond Phillips show up. And uh, <laughs> he, uh, he gives them peyote. And so he's indigenous and he feels that it helps him make up his mind as far as what he's going to do in an impossible crossroads in his life. Meanwhile, Dermot Mulrooney is like accidentally firing off his gun, puking everywhere and going, did you see the size of that chicken? And it's like <laughs> one of the funniest things, like the, the full wisdom of Dermot Mulrooney's character is he just got really messed up and like hallucinated a giant chicken. Um, it, no wisdom came of, of what he was doing. Yeah, I don't think that I don't think that we should think of alcohol as being a portal to some transient activity in the same way that people have reported about hallucinogens. That's not for for clarity, not my endorsement for hallucinogens. No. I'm just saying I don't think alcohol has that ability at all. Talking with John, who isn't John Lennon, but is from the same town John Lennon was, when I listen to his voice, I imagine it is, was really interesting. John grew up in what has now been rebranded the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church, in which is the full-on cult split-off of my own group. One big difference between their group and ours, besides theirs having a worldwide leader who has control over the most private aspects of members' lives, is that alcohol is pretty much the only pleasure allowed in that group, and so it is enjoyed fully by many there, unlike in mine, where it's forbidden. In fact, a division occurred among them in the 70s when then-man of God, our Paul cult leader, James Taylor Jr., was being recorded at a Bible conference in Aberdeen, Scotland, arranging who would be taking the next of their interminable all-day, all-weekend sermons. The leader at that time was oddly named James Taylor Jr., having inherited the cult leader position from his father, James Taylor Sr., neither of them being successful folk stars. The division occurred over the fact that Taylor, as he dictated the events of the weekend on the fly, was very obviously day drunk and was inappropriate around people's wives that evening. Because every syllable that leaves the worldwide leader's lips must be tape recorded, transcribed to paper, published and purchased by every Taylor Plymouth Brethren household in the world, we have that division-causing intoxicated meeting today. 
Here's a snippet of Taylor punishing members, calling them brethren forbidden words like bastards, by decreeing that they are going to be led of the Holy Spirit, apparently, to give the next address, sermon, meeting, or whatever. Members knew the approved response was to laugh appreciatively, as if Taylor was being the very soul of wit. Well, the object of these meetings, as usual, is to get some people to spiritual. That's the object of the meeting. That's the real object of any meeting, is to get something spiritual into the bedroom. Now, how are we going to do that? We well, got all these bastards here. I'm looking for you. I'm looking for you. You're going to get it. But George, George, you're going to give him the next address. That may be not too happy for you, eh? I mean, Alec, you may not like that. But he's going to give him the next address. And then we're going to get the next so-and-so. And that's going to be that bastard sitting there. I think his name is Craig. That's the next passage he's going to speak. As to the poor reception of his inebriated preaching and the subsequent division that followed, Taylor is quoted as having said, The drinkers understood it. The thinkers didn't. Thinking was bad. Drinking was fellowship. Of course, in the Victorian era of our movement, when it began in Europe, drinking and smoking were harmless social fellowship activities, just like they were for C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien a generation or two later. Former Plymouth Brethren member Alistair Crowley graduated from them to heroin, of course. It was the influence of North America and Christian feminist groups such as the Christian Women's Temperance Union that made abstinence from alcohol a Christian thing to begin with in North America. Christian in the sense of common evangelical practice as opposed to what would Jesus drink. John explains that members of his Taylor Hales brethren were required to attend church five times each Sunday, with Sunday meetings moving from town to town requiring members to do a lot of driving while a lot of drinking was going on all day because Jesus. Funnily enough, um, again, it was 66 to 88. Only a few were ever caught drunk driving. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I believe and I've heard other people say the same, that there would have been hundreds of people who driving in between meetings would have been over the limit, over the legal limit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and some did get caught and banned. Uh, and I've heard some horror stories of, of uh, some deaths happening as a result of drink driving. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, but it, again, it was normal, normal for us. It was a culture. And because they drunk it all the time, uh, Many of them who weren't alcoholics, exactly, they would just be um, used to it so that they were able to drink. They were able to consume a lot of it because it was it was such a habit of theirs, you know. Kim, raised in my assembly, was surprised and very amused to hear about this. Also, very strangely, um, big culture of alcoholism. So it's completely riddled with alcohol-related crap but it's our meeting, basically, like our meeting on scotch, if you could imagine. And and apparently our meeting on scotch doesn't make it sound as better as it should make it. Yeah. <laughs> it makes it worse somehow. I know. There's a couple people from our meeting I'd like to get on some scotch and see yeah. what they had to say. I'll tell you what. <laughs> Me too, a little bit. Um, but But yeah, apparently with them, it didn't work out. 
At this point, Kim leaned forward and showed me that, among other things, a Japanese coin with a square hole in the middle of it was strung on a neck chain she always wears. Um, I got to tell you something really crazy. Okay. Okay. Um, so your sister, I thought, was so cool when I was mm-hmm. a little kid. Anyway, when she came back from Japan, she gave me this coin. And wow. it has been around my neck ever since. You have a yen for it. It's awesome. I wasn't yeah. sure what it was. I couldn't see. Troy was actually in the car when Doug had a likely not very alcohol-related car accident with my brethren friends in the car while I was driving home in my own car from an evening spent in the studio recording would-be hits. You were there, of course, as well, and other people. And then we split into two cars, mm-hmm. and we were going to head back to Bill's place on the other side of, uh, well, basically at the edge of the city. And, yeah, we get into Doug, and I well, I can't remember what car he was driving, but it had a beast of a motor in it. And he hit the gas um, trying going up Elgin Street, just past the cop shop to get onto the, the Queensway. And he hammered the gas off the lights, obviously lost control of the car. And there is a... Um, a light there, a pole on the opposite side. And instead of going up the uh, on-ramp, he bounced off of that, the front of the car bounced off that and hit the the fence, the metal posting that's there, obviously, because other cars have hit it. And then we went in under the underpass and he bounced off the stone columns on the one side and then we bounced off the uh, the actual underpass the, uh, itself and then kind of spun the car around. But this is like four or five in the morning, so nobody's really around. And... So we come to a stop. We're like, oh, my God. We get out. The car is kind of bashed in. Doug's just like, let's, I think it's going to go. And we're kind of looking at going, I hope so, because there's some rubbing going on with the tire. And we all get in the car. He, we turn it around, and it sounds pretty rough, but we get up, and we hightail it all the way back to, to Bill's place in Bell's Corners. Is it your view that Doug was sober or not? Uh... I'm not sure. I think by that point he probably was because we had been walking around just killing time at that point. I think mm-hmm. like uh, I don't think he was he would be intoxicated, or if he was, it was very mild. I think he's just he liked to drive that car like it was stolen. Yeah, and he got in a lot of accidents. I'd heard, yeah, like later. I mean, at that point, I I had only met Doug a few times, um, and we had gone down to visit him at his place by that point, but. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that was, that was uh, probably the last time I think I saw him. And, uh, but yeah, it was, uh, he just liked to drive that car hard. Cause even when we were driving that car the previous night, he was moving. Like mm-hmm. if, uh, if the speed limit said 80 kilometers, he was, that's 80 miles. <laughs> I don't know why, but when we were moving on from our church upbringing, it seemed to be about the more intense experiences possible. So Everybody went from no smoking to smoking cigars, to not drinking, to drinking straight whiskey. Um, and everyone drove like that, and I just I think maybe Doug wasn't terribly skilled at driving like that. Yeah, uh, I definitely think that uh, it seemed odd that uh, someone would lose control of the car off of a dead stop like that. Compared to them, I told Dave once that I thought I drove like a, a grandma. And Dave said, like, Mario Andretti's grandma. (laughs) (laughs) Doug and Michael ended up having an unplanned extended stay in Canada while the car was repaired over the next few days, much to Bill's displeasure and concern. 
an even darker question because you know I apparently have no limit of, of darkness. Um, <laughs> I, I'm thinking about brethren and religious people who are raised like don't drink alcohol or you will become an alcoholic, and they do. Mm-hmm. But there's also mm-hmm. the thing where Christian women are being mm-hmm. raised that if a person drinks, they may become an alcoholic. And they end up marrying someone who becomes an alcoholic and they accept it more than you'd expect because they were sort of told that this is what happens, that worldly people are alcoholics. And so they just marry one. That actually makes sense. Because they don't all become alcoholics themselves, but there's a troubling number of brethren yeah. women that who I know, I, I could name about five, who yeah. ended up marrying an alcoholic and they did a lot of forgiving it and saying, well, seeing it as normal. A lot of justifying it. A lot of saying, Oh, he doesn't really have a problem or maybe other people couldn't safely consume this amount of alcohol, but he can because he's different. He's special. Yeah. Or he really does have it under control. He really does. It, It just looks, it looks like he does it, but he really does. I was trying to tell someone, that he was drunk and he was arguing that he wasn't drunk when he was and he couldn't argue sensibly with me and so his evidence was that I was cheating because I wasn't as drunk as he was so I could falsely appear to win an argument that he was drunk when in fact he was drunker than me because I'd only had a couple Right. But he wasn't drunk and I was cheating because if I had drank as much as him, I would see that he wasn't drunk at all. And these are the kinds of stupid arguments that most people probably wouldn't have patience with and exactly the kind of stupid arguments that I would entertain for two hours at a time. Mm. Yeah. With exactly. drunk people. Melody, raised in a similar Plymouth Brethren group to my own, was raised entirely without alcohol, but ended up marrying someone non-Brethren with a drinking problem. We were raised, there was never alcohol in our house. My dad believed he had an addictive personality, so he didn't want to even start with it. So I did not start drinking. So my husband drank and he likes to go hang out in bars, mostly without me. Um, But I had a bad reaction to that. Like, I mean, it caused me a lot of stress and anxiety. So I didn't start drinking until um, he left and we were going through the divorce. And then I started drinking. I went through about six months where I drank a lot, including one really bad night where I ended up at my friend's house. She was driving. Um, We got to her house and I threw up all over her bathroom. Mm -hmm. And in my memory, there was like puke four inches deep on the floor. Um, I don't think it was, and you weren't, you weren't, and you weren't 12 either. No, I was 35, but that's part of our, the fun of being brethren people is that you come to the party a little bit late. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Most, yes. Those of us who show up at the party are usually old and we're like, whoa. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And everybody else is like, what is this old person doing? I've been in bars with my brethren friends and they didn't act properly in bars. (laughs) Uh, so now i can drink in moderation whenever i want and it's fine it was just a side effect of the ex-husband you know if that's what it took to like become a normal human being that's fine that's god's plan okay i'm fine with that my own experience apart from dark hints from my parents that alcoholism was making curry's home life difficult at times was of my brethren friends fulfilling those self-fulfilling prophecies about alcoholism 
Not only was this view of alcoholism bolstered by the excesses of my rebellious Plymouth Brethren friends, dragging them denying all the way into out-of-control, ugly-as-hell and downright scary alcoholism, it was also bolstered by some people I worked with. There was one guy in particular who stood out. Obviously, many young twenty-somethings get drunk on their days off. This guy stood out, though. Any evening, he wasn't at work. He was seemingly in a bar, wanting to go where everybody knows his name. He wanted all of us to come along and sit with him as he got smashed, taking note of all the special favors and the special regular position he claimed to enjoy in these bars. He was ethnically and stereotypically Irish, so we called him Finnegan before he earned a different nickname. If we were working evening shift, Finnegan was going drinking after we got off for the shift. If we were working nights, he'd show up from the bar and slowly sober up on shift. If we were working a day shift, he'd show up profoundly hungover. Finnegan was friendly, he was entertaining, he was nice, but all this did not go unnoticed. In fact, people started calling him Captain Hangover. I asked Evan if he could relate. So I worked at uh, a grocery store, and on weekends, all of the cashiers were young people, like teens or maybe early 20s at the oldest. And our boss said, if your illness is self-inflicted, do not be calling me to say you can't come in and work. If you're going to go out and party, you're going to show up at work the next day. Mm-hmm. And only a couple times did we sort of fold on that position and actually send someone home because she was, it was like between every two customers, she was running upstairs to a garbage can to, you know, puke out her guts again. They loved having me at my job. They would have me come in. I'd be the first cashier on. I'd be right at 8 a.m. because they knew of everybody in the store, Evan was not going to be hung over, right? So it became mm-hmm. sort of a, a sense of pride for me too. In high school, I was very dependable because of it. As you know, I have a, a big interest in math. I used to write, we were nerds, I guess, at work, but I would write math questions and that people would get to solve. But it was fun because I would put the names of our coworkers in it. And so one time I had them all solve for like, who had who had drunk the most drinks mm-hmm. the previous night. And so like when you're solving it out, you know, the girl who's running off cash to puke out her guts, she's like 10 drinks the night before. At high school, it could make the students feel represented so much better if they involved a lot more drunkenness in the word problems. Yeah, well, I was doing this, you know, on my cash, on my weekend job, you know, I don't, it, it wasn't an attempt to engage anyone. It was just, I guess there was maybe a little bit of resentment coming out there too, because I was frustrated that, I wasn't frustrated about being dependable. I was frustrated about not having the support on the cash. Like I had to work harder because they weren't working as much. As a touring musician, Kim could also relate, giving me a vaguely Alan Doyle related story. On the East Coast of Canada, all music anecdotes inevitably lead to Great Big C and Alan Doyle. Um, My mom has never seen me play live, but I took her to see Alan Doyle play live. Yeah. I somehow convinced my mom she did. I mean, she, my mom loves music, and my parents watch music on TV and stuff. 2019, before everything shut down, we played a festival in uh, Saint Pierre et Miquelon, mm-hmm. uh, which is like the Fr- the French island just off of yeah. Newfoundland. Yeah. We used to do music festival there every year. Anyway, we uh, Alan Doyle was one of the other one of the headlining bands. The band that opened for Alan Doyle, the drummer, he got really mad because. He wasn't allowed to play Alan Doyle's drummer's drum set. He had to like set up his drum set in front of like that. And he was like really mad for whatever reason. That's pretty standard, right? That's super standard. Yeah. So he proceeded to get like loaded drunk backstage. And 
Did he puke on Alan Doyle's drum kit? No, but he was like on stage, like playing like drunk and just screaming. And every time like his band would like, there would be a pause in the song. He'd just scream, Alan Doyle, Alan Doyle. And then he gets off stage and he goes back and he's just like lying in the green room, just like screaming Alan Doyle over and over and over again. And anyway, and then Alan Doyle like shows up and he's just like, what is this guy's problem? They, anyway, they like kicked him out of the tent, but Alan Doyle was so sweet. He thought it was really funny yeah. but anyway he's he's like the best dad you never had when you're on the east coast you don't have to look too far to find some traditional irish music oh yeah no the east coast is most definitely uh got a lot of influence from that what's the relationship between struggling with addiction and having a pretty demanding performance job oh i don't know for i i really alcohol helped for many years i could never you know before we would play a, a gig and we saw other bands do this. And I guess this is why we did it, but everybody would have kind of a shot right before you mm. go on stage. You yeah. have like, you know, everybody, bing, everybody would do their shot. And then you, you go mar- marching onto the stage and you just sort of, and then you'd finish. And sometimes I'd have a beer on stage, you know? I mean, there was a couple of occasions, which I, I regret that I drank, ended up drinking quite a bit and being mm-hmm. on stage and just not being in the best shape, you know, but, the vast majority of the shows, I would have maybe a beer or two on stage while I played, but really, it was pretty pretty much sober. Pretty much everybody kind of was. That's uh, what I was uh, thinking, is that with, with my closest experience with somebody who was an alcoholic, what really seemed to help him was having a lot going on in his week. If he had nothing to do, he would just drink. And if he had a lot of work to do or was doing something like performing music, he sort of couldn't. And so it cut it back. Yeah. Well, I guess that's sort of, you know, I guess it's kind of what it was, you know, but I remember whenever we had days off, I mean, it was just like, it was drink arama you know, that was mm-hmm. really what happened with, with the band and stuff there. This song was originally written a decade or two before The Walking Dead was a TV show I'd heard of, which clued me into the fact that it had also been a comic book I then sought out. I got into both of them, even though I'm not a particularly huge zombie fan. But to me, extreme intoxication was people poisoning themselves with toxic stuff, wandering around poisoned and half-dead like herds of slow-moving, groaning, mumbling zombies, especially the next morning. Cheryl. Someone from Facebook with very accepting and perhaps new age views with a background of being peripherally involved with a doomsday cult or two said this in response to the idea that alcoholics seem like zombies to me when I was a church lad. I would take a contrary position. I would say that alcoholics felt like zombies, so they drank to feel alive. Interesting. And then they drank too much. (laughs) But the initial and people like in my family that are alcoholics, when they became sober, they said, I drank to feel alive because I felt so dead. And this goes with most addicts of anything say that they need the substance to feel normal. They don't feel like themselves. Yeah, this is key because this is what these organizations do not help with, because the reason that people are alcoholics or addicted or anything is because they haven't been taught how to find them true, their true selves or who their true selves is. And they're living in these masks and these ideas 
and rejecting them or accepting them and struggling against these things that they're told they're supposed to be and they can't be them. And it's enormous pain and struggling. And so they turn to addiction. Someone I knew, um, as far as I could tell, he was unable to give up control and feel pleasure in a normal way. And so all he had to do was buy alcohol and suddenly he had permission to not act in the way that he felt he was required to act. It was like this little ticket that said, now you can be all the parts of yourself. Yes. Normally get to yes. Be. Yes, exactly. They're just trying to be themselves. That's how it starts. Mm-hmm. They have a great night where they're drinking and they feel themselves and they're connecting with other people. So they do it again and they drink more and more, and then it becomes a huge problem. And unfortunately, um, something I'm, I'm include in the podcast is a lot of these people were very repressed, the religious ones. And it's mm-hmm. almost like they've got some very undealt with psychological baggage. And once they start using any substances, it all comes out in an uncontrolled way that doesn't seem to help them grow in dealing with it. Um, if they have a temper, if they have violent tendencies and resentment, this pours endlessly out whenever they're not sober, but it doesn't seem to resolve or get dealt with. It's just, they can express the feelings that surround it. Exactly. And then while they're sober, they've just added to their guilt and shame. If they remember how they behaved, now they have more shame because of how they behaved last time they drank. So now they drink to numb that shame and to feel joy. I was overjoyed to have Tim on the podcast because he was willing and able to talk about problematic alcohol use from personal experience and at length. I knew it was going to make the podcast episode very long, though. I guess we'll all just have to deal with that any way we can. Perhaps a stiff drink might help. But my stepdad was a, was a raging alcoholic. Man. And, uh, you know, he was functioning for the most part, but, you know, it was, I, I, I grew up a lot of times, man, getting woke up at two, three o'clock in the morning with him, uh, you know, coming home drunk, slamming doors and windows, try, trying to kill my mom. I mean, I used to pull him off my mom, you know, when I was a kid, he'd be choking her or whatever. I mean, it was just, it was constant constant insanity and we never knew we were never safe never felt safe but the thing was is that both he and my mom had really pretty good jobs so so it was it was masked you know and we weren't we weren't well we weren't wealthy by any means but we uh you know we we were able to put on a face and that's what i did i'd I'd go to school every day with a face like you know oh everything's fine Mm -hmm. do you think that because when you're when you're like a religious kid it's very you don't feel like you belong at school you're not supposed to belong you're supposed to be the christian you're supposed to be different and do you think that that makes the the belonging of going to a party and hanging around with girls and smoking like everybody smokes and drinking like everybody drinks do you think that kind of makes it all the sweeter it's all the cooler because you you really didn't have that before and you really wanted that absolutely absolutely but you know there's there's another factor in here and i don't I don't know how much you want to get into this with, with, with me and, it, and everybody has their own opinion on it. I, this is, this is my opinion. Sure. I believe that I have an, had an allergic reaction to alcohol as well. You know, uh, mm-hmm. it, it, it's, I have a, a, it's called a phenomena of craving. So I wouldn't just drink like if there were, I wouldn't just drink. Okay. I've only got a six pack. So that's all I'm going to drink. You know? Right now. I didn't have it right away. It wasn't the first couple of times, but within, within six months of my partying, dude, I was drinking as much as I could, doing as much. I, I never shot up or anything, man, but I did everything else. And, and anything I could snort, sniff, I, I was doing it, taking acid, 
just to get the hell out of here, you know. People listening to the podcast won't uh, be able to see that you you tapped your head said to escape from here. Okay, quickly turned into an escape completely. Let me throw you something. Uh, yesterday, I, I talked to Cheryl, and what Cheryl said is that they f- need to do it to feel alive. That they feel like zombies until they drink. Do you think Cheryl's onto something? Yeah, I mean, if you're an alcoholic or a drug addict, yeah. I mean, there's a lot. Not not everybody is. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, my wife. <laughs> I told her the other day. I said, "Hey, there's, there's you got one beer left out here." Yeah, and she goes, "Oh, that's uh, that's about right." I go through a case of summer. You know, mm-hmm. It takes her a whole summer to go through a twelve pack of beer. I'm like, what's wrong with you? You know, yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. not normal. Uh, so I don't think that for everybody that's partying, but I'll bet you that's what the religious people think. Oh, if you're if, you, if you're drinking, you're just trying to escape everything. Uh, not necessarily. I mean, that's 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 those of us like myself who who are. I mean, I became an addict pretty quick. Whether it was uh, you know my. My family has a long history of alcoholic, alcohol abuse. I actually like the military pretty well, man. I mean, because there's a lot of guys in the military that were just like me. You know? Right. Uh, we, and, and, you know, I, now that I've been sober for all these years, I, I, I became friends, or I've always was friends, but I connected with a guy that I used to uh, be in the service with. And I was telling him, I was like, man, we were just always so up. And he's like, it wasn't just you, Tim. He said, we all were. You just got caught. You got in trouble. But, you know, so when when people thank me for my service these days, you know, they, I, I'll tell you, that bothers me, to be honest with you. Because oh, yeah. you know what the military taught me how to do? They taught me how to how to really drink. They taught me how to really party. They, mm-hmm. they you know, taught me how to kill, which that is not a big deal. But, you know, they, it, they encourage that lifestyle over there. Now, I think, I, I don't know if it's changed at all or not. It seems like the military's cleaned themselves up. So I get kicked out of the military. I get back here in the United States. I I, uh, I have left a girl there that I loved or thought I did. And so I'm like, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna have I really want to be a rock star. You know, it's time it's time to get serious. You know, yeah. and uh, dude, I was all about the whole uh, Jimmy Page and Robert Johnson phenomena of selling your soul. You know, yeah. And uh, I've read cool. Aleister Crowley's autobiography. And really? uh, Alistair Crowley was raised in the same Plymouth Brethren group that I was. And so yeah. it's very familiar that he was, he was raised to be a fundamentalist Christian. And it's, there's such, there's this recurring thing of where did Alistair Crowley go from the Plymouth Brethren? Intravenous drugs and like orgies. That's what uh, you do, I guess. And yeah. it doesn't sound like it satisfied or was worth it or, or whatever. It just sounds like this sort of blind Head first, you know, dive away from his childhood. I don't know what he's looking for. Uh, a lot of status. He wanted to be famous and everything. Um, he wanted to be a rock star, a cultist, Aleister Crowley. But it, it always seems complicated to me, all these stories. So um, I know that Jimmy Page is interested in Aleister Crowley and all that sort of stuff. But I would be surprised if Jimmy Page told us that the reason why he became a rock star was because that he sold his soul and that's what made it possible it sounds to me like he like i couldn't believe jimmy page played session guitar on like everybody's album long before he was ever in led zeppelin like work hard work and time and and keeping human connections open with people that people that would would call you because you're okay to work with all that all that human mundane boring stuff seems to be 
if I was talking to Jimmy Page, I would expect that he would probably tell me that that it's something to do with it. It wasn't all the occult stuff. I think occult stuff might be a bit of window dressing or add a bit of extra spice to the boring realities of learn your chords. I don't know. I started playing in bands when I was literally about 14 or 15 in high school. And I'd locked myself away in my room for a couple of years, just practicing. You know, I really wanted to be good and I really wanted to be in a rock band. And that was sort of the big thing. So my life started to unravel, you know, getting kicked out of the military, went and lived with my mom and my new stepdad for a while, which my new stepdad's a good man. He, he's mm-hmm. got his faults, but he's a good man. He's, he's been good to my mom. My mom's been re- remarried to him for a long time and they're good people. But, uh, but uh, I didn't last too long there. They said, you need to get out. And uh, and uh, in a in a year and a half time frame for me being out of the service, I I had a drunk driving accident where I almost killed a guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been arrested seven times for public intoxication and fighting and, and, and OWI. Uh, I had uh, lost everything, man. And, and I, I, my, my family was like, we're done with you, man. You know, what the hell happened to you? Cause I didn't, I didn't go into the military like this. And I come back to some mess. You know? Right. By that time I was really just didn't want to have anything to do with God. I wanted to be a, uh, a, a famous rock star. And so I actually, I remember one time I was in my uh, apartment. I had like a one room apartment. It was a hundred dollars a month that I had to share a bathroom with people. And, and I was, I was uh, scamming people for money was how I paid for my drugs. I didn't even have a job. I don't know how many jobs I threw out after service. But I, I uh, renounced my faith in Christianity. I was like, I'm no longer a Christian. Uh, uh, Satan, I will follow you, whatever you want from me. You know, I mean, I was, I was, and in my heart and my mind, I really, truly was thinking this is it. This is what I want to do. Well, my Satanism lasted for about a week. <laughs> and yeah. uh and uh it real i realized like, because i mean i'm i'm living in grace college theological seminary is right here which is grace brothers college is right here in my hometown okay and uh, i and i'm like it, it, i gotta go to church so i threw all my books away i went to church a week later and i'm like i'm sorry god i'm sorry i'm well about uh two or three days after i made this I came back to Christ and oh, I'm not going to do this. I was, I was, I was hung over and I'm, I'm cutting aluminum ladders and, uh, the rung that I was cutting caught on the saw and mm-hmm. jerked my hand in and I missed him. I lost a finger and a half on my, on my fretting hand. So the first thing I, I'm looking at my hand, I, you know, it's a bloody stump here. And I'm like, Oh my God, there goes the guitar. Right. You know, I don't tell a lot of people that story. I don't mind sharing it here. It's part of me. It's the truth. It's where I was at. And, uh, you know, I, I, I saw a lot of shit when I was, when I was doing drugs and, and you know, you don't ever want to do a hit of acid and, and, and be in a bad, bad place in life and then look in the mirror. <laughs> That's yeah. not a good idea, man. <laughs> After I got through my last arrest and stuff, uh, and got into a treatment center and, and, and found out about Alcoholics Anonymous and, and this 12-step stuff. And, you know, uh, uh, I, I, I also got involved in, in Christian music ministry. I, I, I started with these four guys. We started a, a Christian heavy metal band. And mm-hmm. uh, so that kind of took me, you know, and they were all pretty amateur. And, and with my two and a half fingers, I was able to keep up. And we did all originals and had a, and that was just the beginning of 
some really cool stuff. I mean, you know, I ended up being a, a playing guitar and, and bass on a huge worship team, a big big church here in town, and, which was a very non-traditional, almost anti-grace brethren, anti-legalistic church that I belong to. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, those, those are pretty popular these days. I play in a band locally. We, we don't play that often. We're all fellow, uh, fellow recovering people. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, it's pretty fun. The guys are really, the band's really good. It's really good musicians. It's like, you know, so it's fun. We do. And so when we do that gig, we're generally, we're doing, we're doing cover songs, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's really fun. It's fun for the brain to kind of start thinking like, and plus everybody in the band sings. It's, it's a six piece band. So, you know, I, I'm only singing like three or four songs in the night, you know, mm-hmm. which is great. Cause then I just, I get to just be a bass player again. And I really yeah. enjoy that, you know? It's really fun. Hoping I won't lose my camaraderie with Tim by being too honest, I press things. I did listen to Striper, but as far as I'm concerned, those guys are legit uh, in terms of their musicianship and everything. Um, but, you know, someone just singing that, like, I'm incredibly happy because Jesus, um, that's not me on most days, right? And the idea that I'm going to do a song and what you'd like is me to preach at you. I'm not really, I don't know that songs are, are for that either. But I wanted the real, the real thing. And when I've gone out to, contemporary churches and you know some fairly amateurish musicians like i'm an amateur musician definitely but i don't get what i'm seeing uh so when you say music ministry i don't 100 percent know what that would have meant to you so what what did you think you were doing what worked what was good just t- tell me about music ministry that, that you were doing like what it was all about for you awesome sure well so you know like i said i had the accident with my hand and uh you know but I, I i relearned how to play guitar and i'd been sober for about a year and uh this guy that i used to party with you know uh <clears throat> who'd actually did some bad acid and fried his brain out pretty bad he's like yeah i'm playing guitar with these guys and you want to come watch and i went over and here's these three guys uh christian young men that were had started a band and uh and and i tony was just so out of it and and they they i was like you know i can play guitar and why don't you bring your guitar and so you know we got started in this holy fire was made by our christian rock band and and we the lead singer man this guy knew everybody and very very talented uh not singing wise he was talented in um marketing you know and 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 this was before the internet or anything it was just all connection he worked with the local ymca and so he got us some gigs that were phenomenal. I mean, we'd only been playing for maybe three or four months. Now, the, the church that I was going to at the time uh, let us use their church sanctuary to practice on Wednesday nights. So, you know, on Wednesday nights and throughout the week, that was pretty much my regimen is I had to practice these songs. I was writing songs. I'd go and uh, we'd practice. So I was always, I, I didn't have, I wasn't, didn't have time to go out and party and drink and do drugs. You know, I mean, that was. I, I replaced it with something. I, like you said, I, I belong to something, you know, and uh, that's really and music. The music made you feel alive, made you feel free and made you belong. It made me think I was something maybe special. That, I mean, yeah, I do. You know, there's a lot of ego stuff in playing music. Uh, and uh, but at that time, I mean, man, we I thought I was a rock star. Well, I'm on my way. You know, look out. Mm-hmm. Look out. Striper. It's here we come. Yeah. <laughs> Or Holy Soldier, man, I love that band, White Cross. But so our band, 
we were evangelical, man. We would go out and uh, Kelly, our songs were all, you're going to burn if you don't turn to Christ. Right. They were very, you know, uh, very much that, uh, that message. And uh, we would go to these youth groups and stuff and there'd be a couple hundred kids and you know i'd even give my story at that point of how i became gotten sober and you know dude i'll be honest i'm gonna be really honest with you here what happened with me two years i, I remained celibate for two years i was like i'm not going to screw around with anybody because i've dedicated my life to the lord and uh i uh i ended up blowing it man we got our we, and we've been to some cool places man we got to play at the hoosier dome down in indianapolis and we really weren't all that good. We just knew people, you know. Right. <laughs> and uh, it was kind of it, we were like the Spinal Tap of Christian uh, of Christian music. I, I've always said that. That's what we were. I'm assuming, but, uh, it felt, I'm assuming it felt great to be on that stage, though. Well, it was it wasn't actually in the huge arena. It was in one of the big convention parts of it. Yeah, there was probably a thousand kids there, and uh, they had television crews and everything. Yeah, it was fun. But you know, I went. I mean. I got into playing for years later, I got into playing for uh, this uh, local, uh, you know, mini mega church. And yeah, you know, I, I got to, I've been on some pretty cool stages. You know, I, you, the average crowd size went between 1500 to 3000 people, you know, which was, that was pretty cool. You know, it was a lot better than a bar scene, mm-hmm. <laughs> but you know, you're not performing per se as much as, you know, it's not, it's not look at me. It's like, yeah, I'm an instrument of the Holy spirit kind of thing, which is all, that's all head stuff, really. I mean, but. So when you were on the stage, did you feel that? Or did you did you kind of secretly feel that, you know, I, I've got, you know, a thousand to two thousand people listening to me? Was that what was really going on or what was going on? You know, I've always felt like and, and I don't know if it was just some kind of a weird chemical release or if it was real or what. I've always felt like that when I would get up on stage the Holy Spirit to some degree was working through me. You know, that's how I always felt. Okay. The Holy Spirit's working through me now and I'm here to honor him. But, you know, uh, my hands sweat a lot. I'm nervous a lot. Dude, I make a lot of mistakes. Uh, I'm really, really very down on myself for my guitar playing. I mean, being honest, I, I, That's a stress for me. I, in fact, I try to read a lot of books. One of the reasons I'm reading these books about these rock stars is like, how did you get over this this stuff? You know, because yeah. even at 53 years old, I'm still terrified. Now I I can make a song like I'll play a 30 second song, but if I record it 25 times and I just throw the right version up, then it's easy. You know, I mean, yeah. okay, I finally nailed it. But I just to be able to sit down and play and and, and sing a song and be good and have people go, wow, man, that's something I still struggle with. I'm not really sure what to do with that. I'm not sure how that answers your question. Right. Yeah. And I'm, I'm with you because I, I got MS and I uh, had one, I had one attack of it. I'd want it. Like I never did drugs or drank or anything and looked after my body. And then suddenly my left hand, my fretting hand uh, is a bit clumsy now. So I'm not mm. missing fingers, but um, my index finger doesn't necessarily stay on a string when I want it to. And so, um, no, yesterday I was trying to play a song and I got discouraged and thought like, maybe I should just not play, try to play guitar. So it's, obviously it's been very helpful to talk to you that you didn't give up and, and you had the whole Tony Iommi thing or worse than, uh, than that. I've just got a left hand that uh, is clumsy and that's not fun when you're trying to play guitar, but there's, there's no reason to quit um, just because of that. Today, I... Uh... Dude, I just try to love people, you know. Yeah. And I, and I've got some friends. My I have a sister who's who's married to a, another gal, 
you know, and, yeah. uh, and I, I love people and, you know, I just, I regret a lot. You know, I, I, I regret going out there with that Christian band and do, preaching all that hellfire brimstone stuff, man. I mean, well, she works so hard and at the end of the day, needs a little something extra to take it all away. You see, love can conquer all and man, I wish it were true. She's a girl with a problem and there's nothing I can do, nothing I can do. The problem. We just didn't know really what to do with it arrangement-wise, and then uh, I kind of wondered if it was autobiographical. Like when I heard of your struggles, I wondered if you were secretly talking about yourself, or if it really yeah, was in, a better actual yeah. girl. In retrospect, I, well, yeah, I wrote that about me. I am very guilty of writing songs and saying he or she or something, and really, it's about me. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know exactly what I'm saying here, then, because yeah. that's that's what it is. So much in 2000. Six. That was the first treatment center that I went to. Right before I went to the treatment center there, that was in Quebec. I was there for a month, and I had quit smoking. I had I had not smoked for quite a while, and I remember before I went the night I was packing my stuff to go to fly to Montreal, and my mom brought in a couple cartons of cigarettes, cigarettes, <laughs> and I think she still thought I was smoking, you know. And she said, "Oh, you better bring these," you know. And I was like, "Mom, I haven't really been smoking." And then she said, well, these might be a valuable thing to have there. Might be a good thing to have. Like you're going to jail. Yeah, you know. And so I thought, yeah, that's not a bad idea. And you know what? Within the first day I was there, I was smoking cigarettes again because everybody smoked. Everybody in the entire place smoked. I was in a band with a guy named Bill. And when I met him, told me that he was a recovering alcoholic. So he absolutely did not drink. And he smoked a lot. And what happened is he decided to quit smoking. And within a couple of days, he was smoking and drinking. And if it wasn't smoking, drinking, it was coffee. And I found that it seemed to kind of go together, cigarettes, coffee, drinking. Some people, it's got to be one or all three. Yeah, well, I mean, when I, well, the first time, you know, when I had some long-term sobriety, because basically I, I, I kind of, I guess I sobered up in 2007. And then I had 10 years, I got, I got 10 years sober. And then, uh, I don't know. I slowly kind of started having slips after that. And then I kind of had a major relapse and I went back to treatment in uh, late 2018, actually. First of all, I went to a detox in a hospital. I was there for a week and then uh, just to come kind of down from it. And then uh, then I went to a treatment center in Manitoba and I was there for two months, which was good. I wasn't happy about it at the time, you know. But I was starting to really lose it. I'd, I'd gone back to it, you know, and I was kind of keeping it together for a while. And then uh, then you just, sometimes you just finally get to a point where you go, I don't care. It, you win. <laughs> right. You know, drug, you win. And I don't care. I'm just going to let it go. And then, uh, and that's when it's not good. So, and that's what happened really. I mean, it's not good anyway for me. I'm, a, I'm really a person who gets addicted to many things. What works for you to keep you from drinking structure or replacing with something else or what works? Well, I need to, there's certain things I need to do. I, I do have to have some, some more structure. When I let things get a little too skittery scattery, then my brain kind of goes out there. You know, I'm, I live with bipolar disorder. So my ups are ups, my downs are downs, you mm-hmm. know, it's like, uh, and my whole goal is to kind of keep that a little more balanced. I know what's going to happen regardless, yeah. but it gets exaggerated if I, if I use drugs or, 
you know, alcohol, which I consider a drug, you know, if we use something, then it can affect that, which helps to keep me balanced. I guess I, I stay in touch with other people who Mm -hmm. have gone through and are going through similar things to myself. There's a group that meets semi-regularly about that. And I also have some close friends that are in recovery as well, who I stay in touch with. Yeah, it helps to just talk and it helps to relate, you know? And I mean, I find that with mental health, you know, if you just talk about it, you just get it out in the open. And, you know, I do like the slogan, the bell, let's talk. I mean, I I just really feel that's a great slogan and it's it's very truthful and fits exactly what, what needs to happen within that world, you know? Curry, who eventually came to terms with alcohol and has spent his adult life selling trendy wines on the West Coast, wanted to balance the alcohol is bad tone of the episode. He has liver cancer unrelated to alcohol and is awaiting a transplant, which ironically means that he can't drink at all right now. Obviously, there's been alcoholism in my family. I do have a lot of thoughts on alcohol. I think first and foremost, I sell alcohol for a living (laughs) and and I have sold alcohol for a living um, for most of my adult life in one form or another, selling equipment to make wine, you know, making wine for people and then, and now, uh, now importing wine and liquor from all over the world and selling it to government liquor boards and private stores and restaurants. So, I mean, alcohol is a big part of my life. So I'll say this, alcohol is dangerous. Alcohol, um, alcohol is not to be taken lightly. Uh, and, and alcohol also can be wonderful and very enriching to your life. Uh, I think that, uh, I don't know how people, enjoy steak without wine i currently can't drink any alcohol and i can't eat i don't bother eating steak it's pointless to me i, d- I just won't right. bother uh and there's and a you, number you, of foods you can't drink it for health reasons not any other reasons i can't drink alcohol right now because i'm on the transplant list for a liver my liver is is totally fine but other than the bile duct issue but it makes sense for the transplant board to have that policy because it's kind of a blanket policy again because 90 to 95 percent of people that receive liver transplant do so because the liver was destroyed through alcohol drug use like like david crosby like david crosby i think most people hopefully i think by 25 have it worked out that if you have a drinking problem by 25 you probably should start figuring that out and a lot of my circle were coming up on 30 in complete denial like coming up on 30 lost driver's license nope don't have a drinking problem that it really bothered me that you couldn't even say drinking problem or talk about it as a problem. It wasn't a problem. And a lot mm-hmm. of friendships are not friendships anymore just because, you know, marriages have ended all that stuff. Kids have been born and grown and left home in, in the, in the time since then. It's a really interesting point. It's a, it's a humbling point. Um, uh, and I think we needed a lot of humbling. We, we came out as a, you know, as, as the, the, what did you call it? The underground brethren kids. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and having all these fresh, great, cool ideas. And then it turns out that we were not any better than our fathers. And we, no. <laughs> we, what we created was just as, as um, diabolical in many ways, you know, mm-hmm. and, but we needed that, that kind of humbling being like, Hey, you know, if <laughs> you, the prophecies, they, what they were prophesying were true. You know, so the, the word of the, the Lord can be in the mouth of, of uh, your, your enemies as well. Do you agree with me that that the the prophecies can be self-fulfilling, that maybe it's not a good thing to continually prophesy folly for your children? Like, you're going to go and screw up now. That's what's going to happen. And then it sort of does. Yeah, I I think that viewing 
screw up as God punishing you or somebody dying as see now God speaking to you and he's punishing you for the, your wicked ways or the, the error of your, your past that you've been on. I think that's false. God doesn't punish us. He prunes us. He chases us. He lets things happen, but he's not out to get us. Alcohol for a number of people can enrich their life and be a, you know, be a net positive in their life, but there's a lot of risk there. Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, as you know, my, you know, my personal life philosophies are that I don't believe that the government should regulate us or stop us from doing things that can be dangerous. But I think it's worth noting. So I don't think alcohol should be illegal is what I'm saying, but I don't really think much of anything should be illegal. Mm -hmm. I, I, I do think that I do think people should be aware about the dangers surrounding alcohol. I think parents should be raise their children to have respect for alcohol, but not fear. And I think the worst thing you can do is make your kid curious about alcohol. And I think the best thing you can do about it is demystify alcohol use. Mm -hmm. I will say that alcoholism does, you know, destroy a lot of families and a lot of lives as society progresses. I think it's getting a little bit less and a little bit better. The, the days of, you know, being blind, drunk, and, you know, using alcohol to the point of stupidity seem to be slowly fading away. And even as an industry, we're seeing more of a we're seeing more of a trend of more premium products and people enjoying, you know, more premium liquors and premium wines for mm -hmm. for, the, for enjoyment's sake and collection as opposed to just blunt abuse. So I definitely would say as a society, we're definitely slowly seeing a trend away from the abuse. And that's I'm saying that as from a personal observation and quite frankly as an industry professional, because I see the data, I see the trends. Alcohol in moderation is fantastic and is so beautiful. Um, and enjoyable, and, and it makes people it'll just break open and be happy and, and enjoy each other. Alcohol and profusion becomes, uh, can be a difficult thing. Yeah, because you said it breaks people open, and so my limited experience of it is it is in the Bible especially, it's supposed to be part of a celebration. So you're looking to get loose, you're looking to enjoy the company of people you love, when maybe you're at a special point in your life, like a birthday or Christmas or something good has happened. And it sort of, it, it, it meshes really well with that opening up and trusting and just enjoying. If you're alone or if there's a lot of strife and a lot of darkness, it opens that up is, is my theory. I, th I think you're right. I think you're right. A lot of it's the motive with which you go about drinking it. If you're entering a social situation and you think that you have to have it, it's going to start to taint your ability to, for some people, it, it will, you finish the sentence for me. Some people, it. some people are very obese and some people are bulimic. And so some people have a, a very dysfunctional relationship with food, which you have to eat food and you don't have to drink alcohol, but I, I'm drawing a connection there that some people get very dysfunctional relationships with it. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And I, you know, I, I've had um, two brothers that have, had heavy problems with it. I was I was one of I was the third brother that was um, being sucked into that vortex. It's bad when you wake up in the morning and the first thought in your mind is, oh, I got to get a drink, you know, uh, in order to just to, to function for the day. And when when your functioning depends on any substance, then you you maybe should look at yourself and say, I think I have a problem here. Johan, devout agnostic that he is, takes exception to the Christian origins and central premise of Alcoholics Anonymous. In terms of dealing with alcohol abuse, um, one thing I would, I, I'd like to mention, I suppose, is that I have a lot of really, really fundamental problems with the way that we treat alcohol abuse here in Canada and North America. 
um, especially with Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I'm very uncomfortable with their sort of reliance on this, this sort of nonsensical concept of a higher power. I think that is such a weak, uh, intellectually weak way of dealing with a serious medical problem. Um, it just makes me sick to my stomach just thinking about it. And it's very hard to find um, uh, alcoholism support for uh, people who aren't interested in um, any sort of myth- mythological, you know, God-given um, support network there and just want to be good people helping people. Um, it's hard. They're, they're out there. There's, there are programs, but... Um, they're difficult to get into, and uh, sometimes when you're in a position where you need help right away, you take what you can get. And the the uh, people that I know and family members that are members of AA, and of course continue to be members of AA long after they, you know, you're always an alcoholic, right? It doesn't go away. Um, but the way that uh, it also sort of turns them towards this this sort of cult like devotion to giving up control I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna let sort of God lead me down this right path uh, just makes me deeply deeply uncomfortable I think you're just sometimes replacing one one addiction with uh, with another right you're you're passing the buck I, I would I, I think it's it's better for us to acknowledge that we are the source of that problem and and that we are also the cure the solution The Walking Dead song was originally written years before I ever worked with Captain Hangover, and then I fine-tuned it to depict him in it a bit. This was long before I had an inkling of how serious my brethren friend's alcoholism was getting. With my Christian friends, drunkenness and certainly being hungover were deeply shameful things to be hidden, lied about, and denied. The trick was to drink and show few signs of it. When the young brethren hash-smoker of my acquaintance had some of us over, I, as usual, did not partake, and Mark, who generally didn't, did, to show willing. My body metabolized that almost immediately, he told me afterwards. With Mark, it was impossible to tell. The point, you see, for him was to handle the hash, not to enjoy it. Control was the point. The good captain, from my high-tech job, though, was less subtle. He can be seen mainly in the verse which depicts his strange, several-times-weekly on-shift transformation— You'd come in before seven in the morning on a Saturday or a Sunday, and the captain would look like a corpse, smelled like one too, troubling to look at or stand too near. People couldn't believe it. He stumbled and mumbled and couldn't really do his job. He could barely walk, look like he needed a drive to the hospital. Then, as a few hours went by, he'd rally and start trying to see if we could take our 10 o'clock or 10.30 break maybe a bit early. We usually couldn't. At the first opportunity, he'd flee to the nearest Denny's or similar and scarf down an enormous plate of hot, greasy slop, and it was like it resurrected him from the dead. I don't know if any nips of the hair of the dog that bit him were covertly part of the hangover remedy or not, but by the time we got back to work, the twinkle was back in Finnegan's eye and the alcoholic's ruddiness back in his cheeks. Our bodies are amazing in our teens and 20s. They take most things we throw at them, and if they don't like it, they just throw them right back up. 
My upbringing had taught me from birth that people like Captain Hangover were walking dead men, that they had no divine life in them, no spark of what God intended for human beings, that they needed the animating lightning of the laboratories we kept in our magic castle, our bastion against creatures leading a death life of this kind. So this song is very true to my upbringing, and there's a matching one about our own church preferred form of living death coming up at the end of the album. Not knowing about that one, my brother and aunt got her hands on the lyrics to this one before I'd ever gotten into the studio to work on already written albums, and she said she really liked it, because it depicted worldly people as the shambling corpses we young people were not to emulate, just like she wanted. I suppose it might do to define what I mean by spiritually dead for the purposes of this podcast. What was it about people like Captain Hangover or me that was in some sense dead? What was this thing I had such a deep horror of, the thing I wrote songs about? Well, a big part of it is the idea of God planting something and it not growing, you being born with something good in you and it being squandered, it not thriving, dying on the vine, so to speak. So God gives you an ability, freedom, resource, or relationship, and Christians interpose themselves to try to make you live as much as possible like God never gave you that thing to begin with, to negate it. Death, as it is understood for most of this album, is about nothing happening when something should. In the case of the church folks of my acquaintance and Captain Hangover alike, it was about making yourself less alive, of being less reactive and responsive, more like a corpse. I'll reach into the wicked mailbag now. A one, a two, a one, two, three, four. Walk into the wicked mailbag opening. The wicked mailbag. What's in the mailbag today? AJ, a woman who knows how to handily kill people with several different kinds of swords or sarcasm, said... We were allowed little sips of wine at family times when it was on the table, which wasn't often, or a sip of whatever dad was drinking. It was rare that he had more than one beer or one scotch or one glass of wine. And sometimes dad would make us spritzers with like a few mouthfuls of wine and soda water or ginger ale when we were teens. For my 18th birthday, my parents got me a case of de-alcoholized beer and for my 19th, a bottle of rum and a case of Coke. I discovered through trial and error that I am an alcoholic when I'm drinking. I have no urge to drink unless I'm drinking. And then, when I'm already impaired, I have no control to stop. And I think my dad was like that too. A friend who was in NA ran me through the Are You an Alcoholic questionnaire. And answering two yes was a warning. Four was you are an alcoholic. I got five yeses. I just learned to set my limits while sober and hang on to them while drinking. I also tell my friends, who are generally good about it, and this has been enforced by the fact that as I age, I have a higher tolerance for not feeling the alcohol and a lower tolerance for getting a throwing up kind of hangover. Three drinks, then three glasses of water. That can be repeated all night without incident so far. The last time I was blind stinking drunk without meaning to was my mom's wedding reception when someone told already drunk me that they were staying sober and I had a drink for them. And now I know better. Marcia says, Two of my uncles, great uncle and grandfather, were alcoholics, both maternal and paternal. If you have any concerns about your children or great-grandchildren having a problem with alcohol, talk to them about any family history that may include alcoholism. Always let them know the choice is up to them. There is nothing we can do to change that choice except to let them know 
if it's genetic or hereditary, and how it can affect them. Also, let them know how much they're loved. Tanya says, My dad was an alcoholic. He died when I was 17. I hadn't seen him since I was about 10. He spent a lot of time in and out of jail and homeless shelters. He was a very violent drunk, and I actually stopped him from killing my mom when I was eight. What I understand as an adult is that he had a pretty severe mental illness, probably schizoaffective disorder, although he never saw a doctor for a formal diagnosis. That was the underlying cause of the drinking problem. Often, but not always, substance use disorders and mental health problems go hand in hand. My attitude towards alcohol has always been extremely cautious because of my experience growing up. I didn't drink at all until my mid-twenties. Little by little, I was able to see people drinking responsibly and learn from them how to use alcohol in a healthier way. I am still very cautious with it due to family history, but I will have a small glass of wine a couple nights per week and on very rare occasions drink enough to be buzzed or a little drunk. I can count on one hand the number of times I've had a hangover. I've never been drunk enough to throw up. I do find myself worrying about other people drinking too much. It is actually something I have had to work on in therapy, as I have learned that seeing my husband drink is a bit of a PTSD trigger. I can't recommend therapy highly enough if you or someone you know has a drinking problem or trauma related to alcohol, or any kind of trauma, really. A pastor friend who asks to be referred to as Shalomi Homie says, I had a best friend who was an alcoholic. That sucked. I have some other friends that I worry about. Mostly, though, alcohol entered my life late, 23 years old, and not in an abusive way. It was more about enjoying the craft over the consumption. It still is. Going out for fun isn't fun when it's driven by things that I didn't agree to, surprises, or when it comes at the expense of other people, humiliating others, jackass style. Jan says, Personal experience. If you empty the decanter, you are responsible for refilling it. If the refill bottle is empty, you are responsible for paying for another. That was the house motto. Mom and Dad just told us never to leave the house if we had drunk too much. I got drunk for the first time, age 12, at a restaurant that one accessed via stairs. Put me off being drunk ever again. Had a boyfriend whose parents banned alcohol. He and his brother used to binge drink on weekends, and when they moved out of home, drank constantly. I know which household I preferred. Michael says, Before nine years old, I was given hard liquor for medical purposes. Then my mother married an army guy since we moved to West Germany. We embraced the culture, including beer and or wine during meals. It was under adult supervision. I took to beer right off the bat. We were in Bavaria, after all, and would consume it every chance I got. Never got drunk then, but lots of times I was told I had enough. I was 13 when my mother was drinking rum and tea. I was curious, and she let me join her. Now, at the time, I didn't like tea, but I figured rum was a strong drink and would dilute the taste of the tea to a tolerable level. I took a sip. The tea taste was still too strong. I asked if I could add more rum, and she agreed. Took another sip. Still too much tea taste. Just a little more rum. Don't remember how many additions I added, but that last swallow caused the room to spin. I decided to go to bed. It was the first lesson I learned in alcohol management. To stop and go to bed. Later, as an adult, that was easier said than done. I found an old version of this song, done on four-track cassette in the early 90s, before I'd met any musicians. This was long before the Walking Dead comic or TV show had been conceived of, so it was George A. Romero's Night of the Living Dead that I had in mind. I liked how White Zombie would take bits of tinny dialogue from quirky old horror movies and edit them into the start of their songs. 
kind of wanted to make a music video of my own with bits of the 60s black and white Night of the Living Dead edited together with my song over top. I wanted to steal a bit of the score for the intro to the song. I also wanted to steal a specific bit from it to use as a sample, something to add atmosphere. Through the foggy, degraded audio of this murky old cassette copy, I can hear my earnest, awkward, 20-year-old self dragging a violin bow across the E-string of my electric bass to add to the sound provided at the beginning of my recording by the film's score. I'm clearly overusing a digital delay effect borrowed from local brethren musician Dan Weeks to try to add gravitas to my wobbly young voice. This song seemed to want to be a hybrid of Black Sabbath and Pink Floyd, with various, very David Gilmour solos attempted on my old cassette tapes. I jammed on it with Bill back when he was the first drummer I'd ever played with, but it never ended up in a live show or in the studio. back then was and is to have two versions of this song on the album, one loud, one quiet, with slightly different words. This is another song that I did some quiet acoustic guitar and told George to imagine it was really pretty heavy and play drums to it like that. Ten years had gone by, and I couldn't remember having done the rest of the guitars for it or anything. 
I remember that George had done drums, but I wasn't sure what was left for me to complete on it. So I was pretty amazed to fire it up a decade later and find the song was basically finished. Professionals say this isn't how to view music or do music, but I'm not a professional, so to me it's like when I feel inspired, I have to jump on that and work on music like the bilio while that lasts. Thing is, almost every time this happens, I throw myself into it headfirst, and then it's like I've drained all the music-making fluid out of me. Also, I kind of put aside what I do, and I don't go back and listen to it. Eventually, I forget what I've done. For me, recording music can be like some kind of groove-induced stupor from which I emerge with little memory of exactly what went on. This was like that. I still have no memory of what I, without the aid of any substance other than loud guitar in the night, did. And yet, rather than the drums, with some temporary acoustic, a song. I played it for Troy. The next time he was over, he said, I mean, there's one you played the last time I visited that was really something. Um, I don't remember which one. It, it was, was like the, a it was the No, 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 it wasn't. It was your more epic one, the one with the, the stops, like the heavy, heavy, heavy stops. It was like an angry okay, you're Black talking, Sabbath. You're talking, you're talking about uh, the, the one about alcoholics being like zombies, The Walking Dead. Yeah, yeah, that one. So that one I thought was like, wow, that's like, and that's the culmination of your, like the skill over the years that you've generated to put something together and, and take your ideas out of your head. And, and, and that's from a musical. Like I was like, wow, that really stuck in my head. And yet the first real recording of it, it has these elaborate Nick Mason drum fills in this original recording of it and me trying to do David Gilmore guitar and in many ways i don't i think that it's easier for me to do the stuff that i do now but i don't know that i have better ideas or anything now i'm sort of still refining old ideas a lot of the time but you're refining them in new ways because you've already played some versions new versions of songs that i'm very familiar with but you've filled them out or taken them in a slightly different direction even in some of your podcasts you've you you played a fragment of the song in its way that i remember it you know 20 years ago type of thing They're coming to get you, Barbara. Stop it! You're ignorant! They're coming for you, Barbara. Stop it! You're acting like a child! They're coming for you! Look! There comes one of them now!
Do not lay it all to 